Hey everybody, uh, welcome to church. If I haven't met you, my name is Mark, I'm one of the pastors. Uh, turn to the person around you and ask them uh, if you're going on holiday, it's a driving holiday, what is the very first item that you pack in your car before everything else? First thing that goes in, what is it? Uh, okay, all will be revealed in due time. Um, uh, let me just uh, yeah, re- remind you of something that uh, Chris shared, which is that tonight is the last, uh, series, last sermon in this series that we've been doing for the whole first half of this year on the topic of the unexpected king, looking at Luke's Gospel chapters 6 to 9. Uh, we've been tracking through this thing really in, in fine-tooth detail, uh, combing through Luke's Gospel. I've had a great time looking through Luke's Gospel and, and slowing down and really just appreciating all of the awesome things that we've seen about Jesus over the first half of this year. I hope that you feel that way too as we come to an end. Uh, Looking forward to what we're doing next term, but also a little bit sad to be leaving Luke's Gospel. Uh, I do want to let you know that actually after uh, the sermon tonight, we're going to have just an an opportunity to uh, share with one another and reflect on what we've learnt over the course of this whole first half of the year, this this massive series we've been doing. And so if you've got your series handbook, we do that thing you've been hopefully taking notes in, then you'll have an opportunity to kind of flick back through, think back of some of the sermons you've heard, share with people around you about what you've been learning, that kind of thing. Uh, All right, that'll be afterwards. Chris will give you some more details about that when the time comes. But for now, why don't we pray, and then we'll get into God's Word together. Uh, Awesome Heavenly Father, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for this group of people uh, gathered here in your name, hungry to hear from you. Uh, God, please, would you be speaking to us now through your Word? Uh, Please, Lord, help us to see your great Son, our Saviour Jesus, clearly in this passage. Help us to hear him calling us to come follow him and help us to be obedient to that call, whatever it's going to cost us. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, Well, I've been packing my car a lot lately, packing the boot, unpacking it, repacking it, unpacking it again. Uh, And that's because I've been house-sitting for the last two weeks. And so, uh, like, multiple times every day for the last two weeks, I've been driving between my house and the house we've been house-sitting at, just taking clothes, taking kids' toys, taking food, taking kitchen equipment, taking bedding, taking everything you can think of in and out of my car over and over again. It's felt like Groundhog Day and I'm so sick of it. So we're at the end of housing now, thankful for that. But I'll tell you what, I learned quite a lot in packing and repacking my car boot this many times. I learned that there is a strategy to success when you pack your car boot. And I'm going to share it with you now. So you don't say you're going to leave church empty-handed. If nothing else, you know how to pack a car boot. Here's the strategy. What you've got to do is you've got to get the biggest the hardest and the heaviest items you can, and you've got to put them in the car boot first, right? So you get, you get the suitcase, you put that in first. You get the porticot, if you're in my kind of stage of life, you put that in next. The biggest, hardest, heaviest things in first, and then, and only after you've gone through all those really massive, important items, you start to go down the list to the, the smaller, the softer, and the lighter kind of items, you know, the kids' toys, stuff like that. Here's my hot tip for you. Uh, if you're ever wondering, can I fit one more item into this car? Have you got a sleeping bag? Take your sleeping bag out of the case, unroll it, and you can squeeze it in the little nooks and crannies. You'll thank me later. It's a really excellent tip. Uh, and if you, if you do it that way, it will work. If you don't do it that way, if you try and put the small, soft, light things in first, and then the big, heavy, hard things in later, you're going to have a bad time. Your stuff's going to rattle around. You're going to break a window. The boot's not going to close. Don't do it that way. You heard it here first. Anyway, so as I've been learning this lesson about how to rightly pack a car boot, I've been reflecting, and I've been thinking that actually there is a parallel between that exercise 
and something else that every single one of us does here, which is organising the commitments in our life. Organising the commitments in our life. It's just like packing a car boot, isn't it? You start off with the, the big, heavy, hard, non-negotiable things, those kind of cornerstone pieces of your life. You put them in the car boot of your life first, don't you? So whatever that might be for you, maybe it's, it's uni, maybe it's, it's your career, right? You get those, those big, heavy suitcases, boom, in they go. Building block number one. What comes next? Probably if you're in a stage of life a little bit older, maybe your house comes next. Your mortgage, right? This is a heavy bag to go and put in your car. Uh, that will usually go in next. And then what's going to come after that? What are the next most important things in your life? Your sporting commitments, maybe. That's going to be a pretty big bag for a lot of people. Uh, maybe your overseas holidays. They're the non-negotiable things for a lot of us. Got to get them in there somewhere. Got to have a sweet Instagram page. That's going to be one of the non-negotiable things that goes in the car boot of your life as well. And after you've put those, those big, important, non-negotiable things in, that's when you start seeing what else you can squeeze in around the side, right? And so you, maybe you put your gym membership in, you know, optional. Nobody's going to judge you if it doesn't fit in the car boot of your life. Maybe you put uh, your friendship with your neighbours in your car boot. That would be a nice thing that would go in there. But hey, if it gets left on the side of the street, nobody's really going to bat an eyelid. Uh, I reckon that that is actually how most of us organise our lives. Uh, it'll probably differ for each of us what we decide those kind of big non-negotiable things are, those things that go in first. There'll be some differences between all of us. But roughly speaking, we put those things in and then we get the optional stuff and see what room there is left. Well, in this Bible passage that we're looking at tonight, uh, we are going to be considering what it looks like to have Jesus in your life. Uh, if I can be so crude as to put it this way, to have Jesus in your car boot. We're going to be considering what that looks like. And my question for you tonight is, as you think about what place Jesus has in your life, my question is, is Jesus more of a suitcase or more of a sleeping bag, right? Is he one of those big, non-negotiable building blocks of your life? Or is he one of those kind of peripheral things, those, those things that are afterthoughts that you squeeze in if you've got the room? What priority does Jesus get in our lives? Does he go in first, second, third, last? What is Jesus, a suitcase or a sleeping bag? That's the question for tonight. And in the passage that we're looking at, what we're going to see is four interactions that Jesus has with various people. And those interactions are going to reveal for us the priority that Jesus demands in our life. That's what we're going to see over the course of the next half an hour or so. And so just in terms of kind of where we are in Luke's gospel at this point, as we get to chapter 9, verse 51, we are at a turning point in Luke's gospel. If you know the kind of the structure, the background of Luke's gospel, uh, chapters 1 to 3, uh, those are the stories of Jesus' birth, right? They're the Christmas stories. That's why we always preach from Luke chapter 2 for Christmas, that kind of thing. And then Luke, after writing those stories in chapters 4 through 9, he tells the stories of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the ministry that Jesus did up in the north of Israel in the towns around Galilee. Uh, and as Luke writes those chapters, those chapters that we've been looking at for the last two terms, Luke is trying to answer a question. He's trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? And we've, we've seen the answer to that question, haven't we? We've seen that question answered time and time again throughout those chapters. Jesus is the one with authority. He is the one who is the radiance of God's glory. He is God's very own son. Those are the kind of answers you get in Luke 4 to 9. And then... You get to Luke 9, 51. 
and the book turns, goes in a different direction. Luke's not interested in answering the question, who is Jesus anymore? Actually, for the next 10 chapters from here, for the next 10 chapters, Luke is trying to answer the question, what does it look like to follow Jesus? If that's who Jesus is, what's it going to look like to follow him? Because you see, in chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus begins a very literal journey. And so we're going to be following Jesus for 10 chapters in Luke's gospel. So have a read with me of chapter 9, verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So here he is, Jesus resolutely setting out for Jerusalem. Maybe if you've got an older translation of your Bible there, it'll have the phrase, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. That's literally what that uh, phrase is saying. He set his face. It's the idea of kind of being determined to do something. It's like gritting your teeth and bracing your body and deciding to go ahead with this course of action. That's what Jesus is doing here as he decides resolutely to go to Jerusalem. Now, question, uh, why do you need to be resolute as you decide to go to Jerusalem, Jesus? It's not just because it's a 100-kilometer journey through the deserts of Israel. That's not the big issue. The issue is what's awaiting Jesus at the other end. You know what's awaiting Jesus when he gets to Jerusalem, don't you? It's his death. That's why he has to be resolute in his decision to go down this road. And I just love that about Jesus. This is honestly one of my favorite things about Jesus, the kind of the courage and the conviction that he has to go through with his father's plan here. I mean, can you imagine what that must have felt like for Jesus to make this decision? For those weeks that it would have taken months probably even to walk that journey to Jerusalem, knowing that every single step he takes is taking him one step closer to his crucifixion. Man, that's big time, isn't it? And, and so we're tracking with Jesus on this journey towards his death, and we see here at the beginning of Luke 9.51 that the first step on this journey is a place called Samaria. That's where he goes. Samaria is, uh, is kind of the land in the middle of Israel. So you've got Galilee up the top, then the land of Samaria, and then you've got Jerusalem down the bottom or in the middle kind of thing. And so uh, chapter 9, verse 52, Jesus sent his messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading to Jerusalem. Now, if you know anything about the Samaritans, you'll know... But they were a bit of a weird bunch, right? They were only kind of semi-Jewish. Uh, they were, you know, Jew-ish, right? They were semi... Yeah, all right, great joke. Uh, these were Jewish people who long ago had intermarried with the other pagan nations around Israel. And as a result of that, their kind of Jewish religion had been like watered down and muddied up. It was a real convoluted mess, the Samaritan religion, right? They had established their own temple in Samaria, a rival temple to the temple in Jerusalem. And they had their own priesthood at this temple. They had their own views on scripture. And most importantly, they had their own ideas about the Messiah, God's promised king who he would send to rule over all things. The Samaritans didn't see eye to eye with the Jews when it came to the Messiah. And so there was this kind of hostility, right, between Jewish people and between Samaritans. There was violence even between these two groups because both of them thought that the other religion was dead wrong, right? Uh, and, and most Jewish people, because of this, because of this like hostility and this, this kind of weird renegade tribe of Samaritans, most Jewish people, if they were up in Galilee and they wanted to get to Jerusalem, they would take the long way around. They wouldn't go through Samaria. They would go around Samaria so they didn't have to deal with this like whack job Samaritan tribe, right? 
But you see, Jesus here, Jesus does something different, doesn't he? Jesus just walks straight into Samaria. Jesus walks straight towards his enemies. And that's what Jesus always does, isn't it? Walks straight towards his enemies. And you see what, what their response is there? Somehow this Samaritan village, they've, they've heard that Jesus and his entourage, that they're on their way to Jerusalem. And so they say, no, thank you, Jesus. Uh, the inns are all full. You're not welcome here. No room, no room for you to come to come to our village. No thanks, Jesus. Right? What's going on here is essentially what would happen on Origin night. If uh, you know, you're, you're there watching Origin at your house, hear a knock on the door, you go and open the door and there's someone decked out in maroon, right? what would you do? You'd just close the door, wouldn't you? I mean, like, that's the logical thing to do at that point. No room for my enemy in my village. And so you've got to understand the significance then of what the Samaritans are saying here to Jesus. The Samaritans are saying, you know what, Jesus, we, we don't want you to come here uh, because if you're determined that you're going to go to Jerusalem, then that is like a, a big flashing neon sign that you don't validate what we believe. You don't, you don't subscribe to our Samaritan theology, right? Jesus, if you're going to Jerusalem, that is like telling the world that God's plan for redemption begins in Jerusalem and not Samaria, and we can't have that, Jesus. Jesus, you can only come to Samaria if you validate our tribe, if you validate our theology, our worship, our priesthood, our, our leaders. That's essentially what's going on with the Samaritans here, right? And so rather than, than repenting, rather than changing their minds, well, they just choose to reject Jesus. They don't want him if he's not going to validate their tribe. They are so pre-committed to their ideology, wrong as it is, that they would rather say goodbye to Jesus. And friends, I reckon the, the truth is that that is actually how a lot of people relate to Jesus. Uh, they want Jesus in their tribe, on their terms, right? Uh, they're, they're willing to welcome Jesus kind of into their world, provided that Jesus validates their lifestyle and their preferences. You know, a lot of people just want Jesus to come along, pat them on the back and say, yeah, all that stuff that you're for, I'm really for that stuff too. Keep going. That's, that's, that's my bag, right? People want Jesus just to validate their preferences. But what happens if Jesus comes along and he doesn't subscribe to your political party? or your particular cause? What if he doesn't support your kind of national interests, your racial preferences, your, your cultural biases, your sexual orientation? What if Jesus comes along and he says, all that stuff that you're into, that's not what I'm into. And if you want to follow me, you've got to let go of that stuff. What if Jesus came along to you and said that to you? Would you repent? Would you let go of your preferences and follow Jesus? Or would you reject him? You see, the Samaritans here, what they're doing is they're putting their tribe before Jesus. They put their tribe before Jesus, and so they miss out on friendship with God. You see, it's always got to be the other way around. It's always got to be Jesus before tribe. If we want to follow him, it's got to be Jesus before tribe. That's the first lesson that Luke wants us to learn in this section, that when Jesus enters your world, he sets the agenda, not you. Jesus doesn't come to earth so that he can join your team. You got that? He comes to earth so that you can join his. There's a big difference between those two things. And so let me ask you, friends, have you grappled with that? 
Are, are there particular hobby horses in your life that maybe you need to loosen your grip on a little bit? Do you perhaps need to repent of any kind of stubborn preferences that you hold and just allow Jesus to set the agenda instead? It's got to be Jesus before tribe if we want to follow him. So look how Jesus reacts here to this this stubborn rejection of him. Uh, Look at verse 54. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? And like, let me be clear here, this is not a good response when you face opposition, right? People reject Jesus. You want us to call down fire from heaven? These are the kind of guys who walk down the streets with those like turn or burn signs, right? They're a bit uh, trigger happy on the judgment. Uh, but all that being said, you kind of got to hand it to them here, don't you? You love the enthusiasm, the optimism. They say, hey, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and smite these guys? They don't even say, hey, Jesus, do you want to do that? They're like, Jesus, just give us the green light and whoosh, we'll just take care of it, right, Jesus? Now, there, there is some background that you have to understand here, some Old Testament background, if you want to really uh, get the picture of what James and John are on about here, because there's a very similar story that takes place in the Old Testament with a guy named Elijah. Uh, Elijah was one of the massive Old Testament prophets in the kind of 8th century BC. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 1. And basically, Elijah's job was as a prophet of God to come to the kings of Israel, the kings who had wandered away from worshipping the true God, and to warn them of the coming judgment of God. To say that you have wandered away from God, and if you do not repent, God will wipe you out. That was, that was Elijah's job description. It was a tough job. And so there's this one incident where uh, the king at the time, a king named Ahaziah, he's in, he's in this area in Samaria, right? In, in the same neck of the woods that Jesus is in, as we read in Luke 9. King Ahaziah does not like what Elijah's doing, and so he sends 50 men to go and arrest Elijah. And Elijah's just chilling at the top of a hill. These 50 men start coming up, coming to arrest him, and we're told that fire falls from heaven and destroys these guys. King Ahaziah, he's he's not deterred. He sends another 50 men, same result. Fire from heaven burns these guys to a crisp. He sends a third set of 50 guys, and these guys have been paying attention, so they come a little bit more humbly and politely. They ask Elijah if he would please be so kind as to accompany them to the, the palace, and Elijah obliges, right? And so James and John, they know their Old Testament. They know this story, and so they're connecting the dots. They're like, we're in Samaria, We're seeing the great prophet of God be disrespected here. We know how this story ends. Fire from heaven. They're going to get wiped out, right? But there's a difference. You see how Jesus responds here, verse 55? Jesus turned and rebuked them. And he and his disciples went on to another village. James and John were wrong about what Jesus wanted. Thank God they were wrong about that. Because you see, Jesus had not come to destroy those people, had he? He'd come to save those people. See, James and John had failed to understand that there was a drastic difference between Jesus' ministry and Elijah's ministry. Elijah came to condemn. Jesus came to save. They thought it was the wrong season. They thought this was a season for condemnation. And Jesus says, no, this is a season for salvation, a season for people to turn to me and be forgiven. Now, I want to be clear with you guys that Jesus did not say that the the season for salvation would go on 
indefinitely. He said there would be an end to that season and that a time for condemnation would happen. Jesus talked about the reality of judgment an awful lot. And the rest of the New Testament is just unapologetic about that reality, that one day all people will be judged and some will be condemned. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, people are destined to die once and then to face judgment. That's the reality. A time will come for condemnation, but, but, but we're not there yet. James and John were not there yet because now the age that we are living in, this is a, this is a day of salvation. That's the time. That's the season we are in. It's a day of salvation. As long as you are alive, friends, as long as you have breath in your lungs, there is an opportunity for salvation. And so look, I want to say, if you're here tonight and you're somebody who has not welcomed Jesus into your life as your saviour, then please, I'm begging with you, please know that you do have an opportunity to turn to him and to be forgiven. You have that opportunity today. You have that opportunity every day. The, the Samaritans here, they shut the door on Jesus. But actually, if you keep reading through Luke's gospel and you read through the second book that Luke wrote, the book of Acts, the next time we kind of meet the Samaritans en masse again is in Acts chapter 8. And what happens in Acts chapter 8 is that the message of the gospel is preached in this area and there is widespread repentance. The Samaritans put their trust in Jesus. They welcome him and they get forgiven. So please know that the same thing could happen to you if you welcome Jesus. Well, Jesus continues his journey. And uh, what we get next from verse 57 onwards are these three like mini episodes, these interactions with guys who are interested in having Jesus in their life, but they make an error, each one of them, and it's a similar error to the Samaritans. The error is that they want to put something else in front of Jesus. They want to have Jesus, but just put him in second place. And so let's look at the first guy, verse 57. What's his mistake here? Well, his mistake is that he puts his own comfort before Jesus. And what he needs to learn is that it's always got to be Jesus before comfort. So verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Right, so here is this guy. This is a pastor's dream. Right, Someone walks right into the church and is like, I'm ready to follow Jesus. I'm, sign a blank check. Sign me up for Jesus. And what is Jesus' response? It's not, yeah, come on board. It's, whoa, 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 whoa. Slow down right there. You know who you're talking to right here? Uh, I am a broke homeless guy. I'm walking to Jerusalem where I'm about to be betrayed and beaten and crucified and killed. Are you sure you want to kind of jump on my train and come journey with me to Jerusalem? You sure you're okay with that? Like this is some brutal honesty from Jesus here, isn't it? It's like it's not a good sales pitch for becoming a Christian, right? But do you realize, friends, that there is actually no promise in the Bible that becoming a Christian is going to make your life easier? Have you understood that? that? If you go looking for that in Scripture, it's not there. God does not promise that if you follow Jesus that it's going to be all comfortable for you. In fact, the truth is probably going to be the opposite. If you become a Christian, life's going to get less comfortable before it gets more comfortable, right? Think about this. As if you become a Christian, I'm going to tell you now, you're probably going to have less money than you would if you were not a Christian because God wants you to use your money and give it away. You're going to have less money. That's not comfortable, now, if you become a Christian, then you're probably going to have less free time 
than you would if you don't become a Christian. Because God says you've got to use your time for the service of other people. It's not about you anymore. It's about others and blessing them. That's not a comfortable choice. Now, if you become a Christian, the reality is that you may well feel kind of sad and guilty more of the time than you would if you did not become a Christian because Christians understand our sin. We understand our guilt before God, and that bothers us. You don't have to wrestle with that if you're not a Christian. You just keep living for yourself. No big deal. If you become a Christian, some of your friends might disown you even. If you're really lucky, people might start hating you because you claim the name of Jesus. Becoming a Christian is not going to make your life more comfortable. And for some people, for some people who value being comfortable above Jesus, well, that's it. End of story. That's a deal breaker. If my life is not going to be comfortable as a Christian, then I don't want to have a part of it. Jesus says the only people who can follow him are people who put him before their own comfort. Now, look, I don't want to make... uh, it sounds like becoming a Christian is like lying on a bed of nails and is like a really terrible thing because it's true, isn't it, that when you become a Christian, you might miss out on some of life's comforts. That's true. But there's a flip side to that coin, isn't there? Yeah, you might miss out on some of life's comforts if you follow Jesus, but you know what you get instead? You get Jesus. You get fellowship with the Son of God. You get your sins forgiven. You get a clear conscience before God. You get peace with God. You get purpose in life. You get unconditional love every day that you are on earth. Friends, following Jesus is not going to be comfortable, but it is the best life. You've got to know that. It is the best life. And so if you want to follow Jesus, you've got to be prepared for that. You've got to be prepared to put Jesus before your own comfort. Let's have a look at the second guy Jesus meets. Verse 59. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Okay, So here is the second guy who comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to follow you. I've just got one last thing I've got to kind of take care of before I'm all yours, right? And and that kind of business, what he says he's got to go back and do, that's totally fair enough, isn't it? He says he's got to go back and bury his dad. And like, let's be real, burying your own father, that's got to be like one of the highest social obligations in every culture on the earth, right? This could never be a bad thing, choosing to bury your own father, right? You see what Jesus says to this guy? He says, no, that's not an option. No, you can't do that. Uh, if you really want to follow me, don't go back and bury your father. Now, that, <laughs> that sounds ruthless from Jesus, doesn't it? Like, that is so callous. That is so cold-blooded when you first read that. But I, I want to try and explain what's going on here because you've got to understand that this guy who says, let me go back and bury my father, chances are this guy's father is not dead. That's probably what's going on because if his father was dead already or even lying on his deathbed, he would not be here face to face with Jesus. In Jewish culture, the son would be right by his father's graveside or right by his father's sickbed. The fact that this guy's here talking to Jesus suggests that his dad's alive and well. And so really, you understand what he's saying is, uh, Jesus, I, I do want to follow you. I just, I just don't want my family to disapprove of what I'm doing here. I want to keep them happy with this decision, Right? I don't want to disappoint them. Uh, And and reading between the lines, I reckon what's really going on here is he does not want to be cut out of his family will. Because Jewish culture, if the the son of the family just packs up his bags and leaves home, boom, that's it. 
cut out of the wheel. It doesn't get a penny, right? And so here is this guy who's basically saying, look, uh, Jesus, I do want to follow you, but just, you know, you've got to give me some time, Jesus. Remember my face, because I'll be back in like 10 or 20 years once my dad's dead and I've got the inheritance and I'm, I'm set up financially. Then, Jesus, everything's going to be in place. I'll be ready to go. I'm all yours. Deal? Well, what is this guy's mistake? This guy's mistake is that he is putting security ahead of Jesus, isn't he? He he wants to take care of his own life. He wants to make his own life kind of nice and safe and secure, and then he wants to come follow Jesus. He thinks, right, that if he puts his own security before Jesus, that he can have both, but he can't. Now, I'll say again, I reckon a lot of people relate to Jesus this way. They try and kind of play this game with Jesus. They say, oh, Jesus, like, I, I, I really want to be a disciple of yours. But look, uni's just really hectic at the moment. And, and like, these are really crucial kind of exams I've got coming up. And if I don't do well in here, then like, the whole rest of my life's going to go off course. So just give me a few years to wrap this thing up, Jesus, and then I'll really commit to you. A lot of people play that game. A lot of people have that same attitude of, oh, look, the first few years of my job, they're crucial. I've got, to, I've got to give every waking hour to my work because if I don't, then I won't be able to pay the bills later in life. So just wait, Jesus, and then I'll be all yours a bit later. A lot of people say, when, when the mortgage is paid off, Jesus, I'll be debt-free. Think of everything I could do for you in your kingdom, Jesus. When the mortgage is paid off, just don't ask too much of me now. And, and so many people play this game of like pushing, following Jesus further and further down the line as if that there ever is going to be a day in your life when every loose end is tied up, when everything is nice and safe and secure and that all of that like enthusiasm and zeal for Jesus that you've been building up for decades is like going to spring forth and you're going to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. Jesus sees right through those kind of excuses, doesn't he? He says to this guy, no, you've got a choice you've got to make. You can try and take care of your own life or you can come and follow me, but you can't do both. And so, friends, I want to urge you, just as Jesus is doing here bluntly, I want to urge you not to delay in following Jesus. Do not put it off for another week, another day, another hour. Because I'm telling you that that perfect moment that you envision in your future when you're going to be ready to follow Jesus, that perfect moment's not going to come. Don't delay. Don't put it off. It will never arrive. Put Jesus before security and start following him today. Let's check out the last interaction that Jesus has on this this section. Verse 61. Still another says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Uh, this third guy, he says that he, he wants to come follow Jesus, but there's just there's something from his old life back home he's got to go back to before he's ready to move forward with Jesus, right? Before he's ready to be a disciple. And we've got to, uh, again, know a little bit of background. There's another Elijah story from the Old Testament that's being echoed here. It's an incident in 1 Kings chapter 19 when Elijah, the great prophet, has to appoint like a deputy, a successor who's going to take over from him. God tells him, go and appoint Elisha. So off he goes, appoints Elisha. And when Elisha gets given this charge to go and be a prophet of God, Elisha says to Elijah, 
hey, that's great, totally on board for that, just let me go back and say goodbye to my family and get rid of my, my farm and deal with those assets and that kind of thing. And Elijah says to Elisha, oh yeah, of course, that's totally fine, Like, go for it, go and deal with your business. What does this guy say to Jesus? Let me say goodbye to my family before I join you. And Jesus says, no, no, don't go and say goodbye to your family. Because you see that there is something so important and so urgent about the call of Jesus on your life that it demands a response immediately. It is more important than becoming a prophet of God. You understand that? And so going back to your old life, even temporarily, that's a mistake. Because you see, for this guy, it's not just a matter of him wanting to go, by, go back to say goodbye to his parents. The fact is, this guy kind of wants to keep a foot in the door of his old life, right? He's not ready to sever ties with his old life yet, because he thinks that one day he might have to, to go back. And that's how it always works. If you, if you look back, you're going to want to go back. And yet, like, I don't have to tell you that, that that dynamic, that has been a problem for God's people for all of time, hasn't it? If you look back, you will want to go back. Just have a think about what happened to the Israelites, right? They'd been oppressed in slavery in Egypt for four centuries. They had the worst time there under these wicked pharaohs who mistreated them and abused them, killed them, worked them to death. God, by his mercy, comes and liberates Israel, leads them out of slavery. What's the first thing that Israel do when they're free from slavery? They start complaining, Going, oh man, you remember the good old days back in Egypt? Man, how sweet was Egypt? Those pyramids, they were awesome. Oh man, things were good back in Egypt, weren't they? Like, how dumb are they? They were slaves back in Egypt. They were slaves. And here they are going, yeah, but Egypt had like pretty good food. It'd be good if we could go back, wouldn't it? Have you ever had those kind of crazy thoughts before? Uh, where you kind of look back at your old life before you knew God? Or perhaps you look at your life and think, what could have been if you didn't know Jesus? You ever had those kind of thoughts? Those thoughts where you think, you know, maybe I, maybe I would have been happier if I wasn't a Christian. You know, maybe, maybe I would have had that big house that my friend has if I wasn't a Christian. Maybe that relationship that I really didn't want to let go of, but that God told me I had to let go of, maybe I'd still be in that relationship and I'd be happy if it wasn't for Jesus. Maybe my life would have been better if it wasn't for Jesus and I could just live for myself, have the freedom to indulge myself, not worry about anyone else. You ever have those kind of thoughts? You ever get tempted to put your past before following Jesus? Jesus says to follow him, you've got to prioritize him over everything else in life, including your past. And that means no looking back. No looking back. Look what Jesus says in verse 62. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. It's an easy image to understand, isn't it? You picture one of those plows in ancient agricultural society being pulled by a, a bull or a horse, right? You put your hand on the plow. And if you look over your shoulder as you're being pulled on that plow, what's going to happen, right? You're going to go off course. You're going to crash. If you don't believe that that's what's going to happen, here's my challenge for you. As you drive home from church tonight, try and do it looking out your rearview mirror. See what happens there. I'm telling you, this is a timeless principle from Jesus here. You cannot look back and go straight forward. If you want to follow Jesus, here's what Jesus is saying. You cannot look back 
longingly at your old life. Why? Because you were a slave back then. Don't you remember? There's nothing for you in your old life. Why would you look back longingly at what you're missing out on now that you're following Jesus? Now, if you want to follow Jesus, you've got to put your hand to the plow, eyes forward, and just keep those feet moving. Because isn't that exactly what Jesus is doing at this point in Luke's gospel? Hands on the plow, eyes forward, feet moving towards Jerusalem. Whatever it's going to cost him, this is what Jesus is doing, and he's asking you to do the same. If you want to follow Jesus, you've got to look forward, not backwards. So friends, we've, we've seen in, in these interactions tonight that following Jesus means you've got to put him before tribe, before comfort, before security, and even before your past. And I, I think it's really significant, isn't it? One of the most obvious things about this passage is that we don't ever actually find out what becomes of these people that Jesus meets on the road to Jerusalem. We never go back to them. We never find their names. We never hear about whether they actually did relinquish all of those other preferences, those things they were holding on to before Jesus and choose to follow him, or whether they remain stubborn in their defiance to follow Jesus. We never find the answer. And that's totally deliberate, isn't it? Luke, who writes this section, he does that so that you, as you read it, you have to ask that question of yourself. Will I follow Jesus? Will I give up whatever it takes to follow him? And so I want to ask you that question. What's your response to Jesus? What's your response to the call that Jesus puts on your life to let go of everything else and to come follow him? Have you put Jesus as that centerpiece, that first priority in your life, that suitcase in your car boot, right? Or are you just trying to kind of squeeze Jesus into the gaps, putting Jesus some distant, distant other priority in your life? I, I wonder what it would look like if we repacked our lives a little bit, <laughs> if we emptied the boot and put things in there the way that they're supposed to be, I wonder what would happen if we built our lives around Jesus. Have you thought about that? Do you think that you would be disappointed if you did that? Do you think you would regret it if you did that, if you built your life around Jesus? Do you think that you would miss out on anything in this life that's of ultimate worth if you decided to put Jesus first? I reckon that when we come to the end of our lives and when we stand with Jesus and when we do look back at the path that has led us to that point, you know what I reckon? I reckon the only things that we're going to regret are the times when we put tribe, comfort, security and our past before Jesus, and we let those things get in the way of following him. I reckon those are the things that we're going to regret. What about you? Well, I want to finish by praying and asking that God might convict you to let go of everything else and just to hold on to Jesus. So let's pray together. Our great God, we thank you so much for our saviour, Jesus. We thank you, God, that Jesus was brave and courageous and had the conviction to follow your will all the way to death on a cross. We thank you that he trod that path for us and for our salvation. And we thank you so much 
God, for your grace and your mercy in calling us and inviting us to come follow him and be his disciples. God, thank you that you invite us to no longer be your enemies, but your friends. And God, we, we hear the call that you are putting on our lives, the call that Jesus must be the highest priority in everything that we do. And God, we want to confess that so often we find that hard and that we are tempted by the things of this world, tempted to hold on to things ahead of Jesus. So God, please forgive us for that. Please show us our sin and please break our hearts where we disrespected Jesus like that. God, we need your help. We are weak, we are scared, we are vulnerable. We need your Holy Spirit to strengthen us so that we would follow Jesus. Hands on the plow, eyes forward, feet always moving. So God, please do a work in us. Please make us people who delight to follow Jesus and to have him. We ask for his sake. Amen.